Hello and welcome to Office Hours on KUCI, the show bringing you cutting-edge research from professors and grad students from all fields. I'm Sibel Kaler, and this week, returning for the second time to Office Hours in perfect timing for Labor Day, is Dr. Keith Danner, a lecturer, teacher of writing, and union organizer from UC Irvine, and the local president of UCAFT, here to talk about socialism and how it could shape the future of America. So, socialism can mean many different things, depending on who you ask. How would you define it? You know, I mean, the main thing for me is that socialism has to do with um, economic democracy, right? So we live in a limited political democracy. You know, we get to vote for who the president is, although the electoral college means that it's not actually fully democratic. But... But like all the decisions, the major decisions of the economy are made undemocratically. And a socialist society for me would mean that the major decisions about the economy are made democratically, you know, that working people get to decide these things. So that's like, you know, a very long-term and huge change that would have to happen. But we don't, you know, we don't get to say, like people don't, Homeless people don't get to say like, hey, I, I vote that I have a house. You know what I mean? Like it's like there's the economic demands are not like subject to, um, to the popular vote, except maybe I guess if you think about like, uh, you know, certain propositions where you can, you know, people can vote directly on raising taxes or something like that. But mostly we don't have economic democracy. You know, we don't get to decide wait a second, my working conditions are making it actually hard for me to um, deliver the kind of education that I want. All of my colleagues who are teachers agree with that. You know, we are the majority. We are more numerous than the people who are managing the university. But the fact that we're more numerous, which would be more democratic, gets, you know, that's not counted. So like, so anything that sort of puts us in the direction of more economic democracy where people control their working conditions and the major economic decisions of the society. To me, that's headed in the direction of socialism. And even just voting is being made hard for, you know, the average working class person these days. It is. And as we know, you know, this is not just about class, but also about race. Um, disproportionately, you know, Black and Latino people are disenfranchised although white people are disenfranchised as well it's at a lower rate and it's you know if they're poor exactly and why do you think people are so afraid of the word socialism in the u.s well you know it's interesting that the first thing to say about it is that they are a lot less afraid than they used to be <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you know the there was a poll last year um and the the poll basically said that um 43% of people said they thought socialism was a good thing. That was last year. And if you look at poll from 1942, 25% of people thought it was a good thing. And there's another poll that, that did something similar, but restricted it to young people. 
and if I remember correctly, it was basically that uh, young adults, you know, people under 30, have a much more positive view of socialism than they do of capitalism. So, you know, it's, it's not as bad as it used to be. But, you know, the negative attitudes are there because, you know, it's very conscious on the part of the ruling class to create these scare campaigns. It's a, there's a long history, you know, people who fight for better wages get called socialists. People who fight against racism get called socialists or Marxists. If you look at some of the soft right and certainly on the hard right or the fascist right um, opposition to Black Lives Matter, a lot of what they say is that they're quote unquote Marxists. Um, yeah. And you know, some people who support Black Lives Matter are Marxists and socialists and some aren't, right? But like, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can see it in the, the Trump campaign reelection strategy, you know, Joe Biden is like about as far from being a socialist as you could get, yeah. but it doesn't matter, you know, they just get label him as a socialist. And you know, it works among a certain part of the population. One thing that was interesting to me to see during the Sanders campaign in, in 2020 is that there was a significant minority of people who were like, well, I'm no socialist, but I like what he has to say. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> okay. Like, yeah, so it's like they, you know, it's like people who have been propagandized into hating socialism. So like in that poll that I just cited, they would probably say, no, socialism is a bad thing. But but then at the same time, they agree with certain sort of socialist or socialist influenced ideas, you know, about the billionaires have too much power or whatever it is, people deserve health care, you know. Right. And what would implementing these beliefs in our current political system look like? I mean, there are things that you can implement under the current system. And then there are things that would actually require total overthrow of the current system. You know, there are certain reforms that you could fight for. You could fight to end the doctrine of qualified immunity for police that lets them off the hook when they kill people. You could fight for outlawing evictions. You could fight for trillions of dollars in federal aid to the states who have these huge, you know, budget deficits. I think the California budget deficit is projected to be $40 billion or something because of the coronavirus. So, you know, all of those things are reforms that you could organize and fight for or against Governor Newsom's issuing of permits for fracking and oil drilling over the past year. Those are all reforms that you could win under the current system. But then there's certain things that, you know, the, the current system is just set up to really fight back against because there are these huge industries that, that are in the way and they're not going to, I mean, you could... Maybe you could win them without a revolutionary struggle, but it would be difficult. You know? I think even something like Medicare for all, which is on the one hand, it's just a reform. You know, it's not saying like you know, we need an entirely new workers' government or something, right? It's just a reform, and it's a reform that's extremely popular. Like seventy-four percent of Americans are for Medicare for all. Not surprisingly, in a pandemic, we have discovered that tying your healthcare to your job is not a good idea. But, you know, given the, because Medicare for all would sharply reduce the power of the health insurance companies, it's, it would take, I think, almost a revolutionary struggle to, to get it, because it would be such an attack on that sector of capital. Yeah, even our democratic leaders have been so opposed to and unwilling to step up to the bat when it comes to that reform. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly there are people on the left who people who are, who are saying, like, if Joe Biden really wants to win, all he has to say is, you know what, I support Medicare for all. And instantly we get this huge amount of support. That's what some people on the left are saying. But he, he's opposed to it. He said that if it were passed, he would be killed. Right. And how can we unite liberals and leftists from all these differing opinions and different walks of life? How can we all get them on the same team, as it were? I'm so glad you asked that question. I think about this question a lot because I have a minor Twitter addiction. And, uh, you know, it's not always healthy or good for unity on there. People, there's a sort of ethos of like people who believe something different from what I believe are stupid, which I think is actually really harmful and also not true, right? Just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't mean they're dumb, right? Um, So, on, you know, Twitter's not all bad. I, I, I quite enjoy some of my interactions with people on climate Twitter and you know, sort of far left politics too. But it doesn't, you know, the, the best place for unity, I think, is there's two places. One is in the workplace and the other is inside of movements, right? In the workplace, if I'm a Joe Biden voter supporter and you are a revolutionary socialist, on Twitter, we might be mean to each other, but in the workplace, we might, we might say like, wait a second, you know, we have sort of working conditions and things that we need to figure out about fighting against this healthcare premium increase. And we need to figure out what we can do to increase job security for everyone. You know, so like the unity is just a lot more concrete in the workplace. It's like you have concrete demands that you can organize around. And that makes unity easier. Now, you, you still, you don't want to hide the fact that you have disagreements and somebody who has sort of Biden-leaning politics might think differently about how you fight for these things that you need. But you sort of, you work it out and you sort of learn what works best because you either win it or you don't win it. You know what I mean? So it's, um, I think it's sort of, you know, it can result in a healthier political debate. And that's the trick. Like, how do you remain unified but not hide those places where you disagree? You know? I think the easiest place is like, okay, we have this demand. We want the, our employer to not increase our healthcare premiums. All right. <laughs> right. So then you sort of, you know, it, you can form a relationship around that and you can sort of fight around that and, and then have healthy political discussions about where you disagree, which are difficult, but can happen. Uh, and then the other places in, you know, when you're organizing, you know, like if you were in an organizing meeting for Black Lives Matter or something like that, there might be disagreements about what needs to be done. Do we need to confront the police? Do we need to avoid the police? Do we need to confront the organized fascists? Do we need to hold a cross-town event away from the fascists? You know, there's all kinds of different things that you can debate. And because it can be difficult Right, because you know, if it feels like an existential thing, which a lot of these things are kind of existential, it can feel like if we don't do it my way, we're all going to die, which makes it hard to listen to other people's points of view. But I think that's that's what it you know, it just requires a certain amount of focused listening to people who are your comrades, even if they don't totally agree with you. Focusing on the goals, the shared goals, rather than the differences. Yeah, I mean, and the trick is that sometimes the differences mean that you think they're 
different ways to get to those goals. And that's when it gets tricky, you know, like, wait, no, that's not how we do it, you know. Right. So you mentioned socialism getting more popular in recent years. Do you think we can thank Bernie Sanders for that? You know, Bernie crystallized a lot of it. And, you know, there's the sort of excitement around the election of AOC and Ilhan Omar, you know, definitely crystallized a lot of that because it made people think like, that these things could be said. And there was something about you know, the way in which, you know, Bernie ran this campaign, which was, you know, so class conscious, you know, you know, not funded by billionaire backers and sort of calling people's attention to that. So it's like, on the one hand, it's Bernie. And on the other hand, it's just the sort of fact that this stage of capitalism, like this massive inequality, it's almost inevitable that some people would say, wait a second, this is really wrong. And you know, my politics are not exactly the same as Bernie's, but I really think it did make a difference. It made it sort of less stigmatized. So it makes me wonder, I don't know if it's going to work for Trump to label Biden a socialist. It's it's like, it may, but but I don't know. It's a little bit like the boy who cried wolf, you know, like every time you say something good, well, we need healthcare, socialist. It's like, wait a second, it could backfire. Right. And going off that, in your opinion, do you think that the Democratic Party is mostly invested in maintaining the capitalist status quo, or could it be kind of shifted further left and used as a platform? That's a big debate. I think it probably is what it is. Like, if you look at the history of the Democratic Party, it's most obvious when you think about um, foreign policy. You know, Democratic Party. Democratic administrations have been as likely as Republican ones to start wars or depose foreign leaders or engage in assassinations or organize counterinsurgencies or try and mess up the labor movements of foreign countries. I mean, that's been pretty bipartisan throughout U.S. history. I mean, in the first 80, 90 years of the last century, every single war was under a Democratic president. Domestically, it's sort of less clear because the record is is sort of different because like, you know, the most progressive things that we still have from past fights, basically from democratic administrations, you know, like if you think about like the Voting Rights Act, because uh, under LBJ or the establishment of Social Security under FDR, so people would point to that and say, well, look, you know, these are things that were bought to us by Democrats. And it's true. They signed the bills. But I guess I, I would say, like, they signed the bills because there was huge social movements pushing them to sign those bills. They were, I think you could argue that they were afraid. You know, FDR was really attacked by a lot of capitalists because of what he was doing, um, uh, which led him to say, uh, People don't realize that I'm the best friend that private property ever had. And the way that I interpret that is like, look, I'm giving these reforms because if I don't give these reforms, there are powerful forces from below that might give us revolution. Right. So, you know, I I do think that even at its most radical, the history of the Democratic Party has been disordered to maintain order. You know, the, the, another example that people sometimes cite is that Robert Kennedy, who I think he was attorney general at the time under, under his brother, said to the Freedom Riders, you know, the civil rights people, you know, he said, 
stop, look, if you stop this grassroots uh, organizing, if you stop your freedom riding and sitting in, and I think you used the word shit, if you stop this shit, I'll get you voting rights. And so like, that's just always what they want to do is like, stop the movements and get us to vote. And, you know, I'm not saying voting's unimportant, but like movements are tremendous. I mean, we can see the huge difference that Black Lives Matter has made in the past, you know, two, three months. It's, it's amazing. So, yes, I basically think that the Democratic Party is what it is, although, you know, the, it's a question, you know, like, because Bernie didn't take corporate money, like, did that make it so that it, it was not a corporate party? I'm not sure. That's an interesting question. And going off of that, do you think that the answer to bringing about change is electing more socialists like AOC in the Democratic Party? Or do you think the answer is go third party with the DSA? Or as you said, some of these things require bigger revolutions and movements than just voting. I think it's almost always movements that get us what we need. I mean, you know, I've been very inspired by AOC. I mean, the I don't know if you've seen it, but she has this video about the Green New Deal that like, I've watched it maybe 10 or 12 times and I think I've cried every single time. So it's, uh, it's incredible. You should look it up, but like there's a way in which, you know, she can sort of crystallize certain opinions that the, that the fighting left needs. But I think that really what, the way that change typically comes is, is by organizing from below, you know, and the thing that's the most powerful really for working people is strikes. Demonstrations are very powerful. Even, even riots can be very powerful and result in you know, reforms being granted because it scares the ruling class. But a lot of times, if you don't have organization that, that you would get in a union or in a, in a strike, in a sustained, sustained strike, you can't really get the change that you need. I mean, this sort of, uh, this is, you know, was, we're in these unheard of times where, you know, when Jacob Blake was shot in the back, NBA players stopped the playoffs. You know, the Bucks like went on strike. It's unheard of. It's incredibly privileged group of workers, but they stopped working. And you know, without them, like nobody's going to see the owners shoot the ball. So it's and it you know it has a real effect. I mean, one of the things that they won was these stadiums across the country being turned over to being voting stations, which is obviously very important when you have an election in a pandemic for people to have huge spaces to be able to vote in. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been alive for a movement as powerful as the last three months. Well, and I'm, you know, 35 years older than you are, and I haven't been alive for that. <laughs> it's like, it's, I mean, this is just like unbelievable, this movement. It's incredible. And I think that, you know, really like building Black Lives Matter, building the climate change uh, movement is, is actually more important than, uh, than elections. And I know that's something that makes people nervous, right? Because you're like, because of how bad Trump is. But I think that that's how we get change. And what would you say to those who are always naysaying and saying, how can a socialist economy thrive? Well, the thing is that the, what we need from socialism it, it is just the, it's not like 
the what's different is how it is controlled, right? Right now, under capitalism, it's just a very small number of people who make those decisions, as I say. And it's actually under capitalism that things are terribly, terribly inefficient. Like, let's take the example of, um, of the development of a vaccine. If somehow we had, you know, say 30, 40, 50 years ago or 100 years ago, every nation had had a socialist transformation and we were actually in a single socialist world, scientists would do the rational thing, which is to cooperate. But if you look at the New York Times, there are these stories day after day about spying and people trying to protect their research and how awful it is that people are spying on U.S. researchers. It's like, the question is, why, aren't, why isn't everyone sharing their research? This is a matter of global public health. This should obviously be a cooperative task. I mean, I know you asked about the economy, but like that, that's obviously the thing that's killing the economy right now is that we, is this, the pandemic, right? It's making it so that people can't do all kinds of things that they would normally do in a functioning economy. And I think under socialism, you would be able to do, you would be able to cooperate and make things work better. Whereas under capitalism, you compete unnecessarily. Um, there's this myth that it sort of, you know, drives for better better products and things like that, but many, many times it stands in our way. Right. And you mentioned this before. Do you think socialism is intrinsically tied to fighting other forms of oppression, like racism and sexism and homophobia and ableism? It has to be. It has to be. I mean, you know, the, the society is deeply sick and all of the oppressions are part of the sickness. And if you're gonna overcome that sickness, you have to be opposed to every single oppression. I mean, I think the role of any socialist today would have to be to be involved in uh, Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter is sort of leading the way of the American working class movement right now. It's, it's, it's the front edge. So I, I think you have to, you have to be, you know, the most ferocious anti-racist, the most ferocious fighter for disability rights, you know, in every single category. And it's so that you can win the unity that you require to get rid of this class society. You know, if we're divided by all these oppressions, there's no way we can win. So it's like, it's a moral issue, right? It makes sense because each human is equal makes sense to say, wait a second, this oppression says this person is not equal. That's wrong. I'm going to fight against it, whatever the form of oppression is. And at the same time, like, it's not just a moral question. It's a practical question. Socialism and socialists can't win unless we are, you know, forging the unity that is required. And that means, you know, overcoming oppressive separations. Absolutely. Are there any countries that you would point to as examples of what the U.S. could look like under socialism? You know, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, there are, you know, I think that historically there have been um, struggles that sort of give an indication of what a socialist society could be like. 
there's one revolutionary who said is you know a revolution is a strike writ large so that you know when you have a strike and it becomes say a general strike in a country or in a city there are all kinds of things that don't happen that then need to get done right so like and then we sort of noticed this in the pandemic, right? There's this phrase, essential workers. Well, it's like all essential work is actually done by working class people, you know? So, so if, there's a, if there's a strike, which I think is what, you know, is necessary to, to get to a socialist world, you know, huge series of strikes and general strikes leading to a revolution. If we have that, uh, the work, you have to say, wait a second, you know, yeah, we're on strike, but everybody still needs to eat. Yeah, we're on strike, but we still need garbage collection. And so then working class people have to think about how they want to arrange the world. And I, I trust working class people to do that, right? So, you know, there are, there are examples in history of huge strikes, you know, France in 1968, Russia in 1917, the Paris Commune, Seattle in 1919. You know, there are these sort of examples of what socialism might look like and it's all based in strikes general strikes revolutions so it's not like you can point to some place and say well that's what we want you know i mean i can point to some place and say well we would be better off if we had the uh, medical care system that they have in britain but that doesn't mean that britain is a socialist country you know, it just means that they have a better medical care system that we should have. <laughs> right. And so you mentioned the essential workers and developing a vaccine. What do you think, yeah. how do you think our nation's response to COVID would look different under socialism? That's a fun thought experiment, isn't it? I mean, you know, that basically the only thing that has really been done, I mean, I guess the first thing you have to say is that you would have you would have a leader or a series of leaders who believed in science. <laughs> That's for starters, right? Right. Um, but then also, like, you know, the, in the current situation, what people need is, you know, to be housed, to have medical care, and to have food, right? Like, that's the rational response to the virus, is to give everyone housing, uh, medical care and food. Well, to me, that's socialism. <laughs> like, like that is in fact what socialism, you know, demands is that every single person be housed, fed, and have medical care. Now, beyond that, then you know, you probably need education and you know, pleasures and the arts and things like that. But just, just to sort of basically sustain people, and it's this terrible irony that the coronavirus points out that uh, the things that people need are exactly the things that would keep us safer. And that's not how it went. Um, you know, you know, what, you know, what do people get? A $1,200 check. And I previously interviewed you on this show about climate change. Could you talk a little bit about the Green New Deal and, you know, how socialism would respond to climate change? Let's see. I mean, the Green New Deal is a reform, you know, so earlier we were talking about reforms on the one hand and sort of a revolutionary change on the other hand. But the Green New Deal is such a major, major change 
that it's almost revolutionary in and of itself. It's going to require a huge movement in order to get it, right? Because we don't have socialism. I mean, here's the thing, like, you know, the, the because the section of the the economy that involves fossil fuels is like $14 trillion in infrastructure and resources that are, you know, oil and coal and stuff that's still in the ground. On the one hand, it's a huge amount. And on the other hand, it's not a huge, it's not, it's only part of the capitalist economy. But that part of the economy has to be gotten rid of. Like, and that is a massive, massive dislocation, right? It means so many high carbon workers being thrown out of work. And so the Green New Deal says, well, look, there's no way we're gonna win that unless we have a huge, huge multi-trillion dollar jobs program that will hire high carbon workers into low carbon jobs. And you know, there are many low carbon jobs that we'll need doing, you know, everything from wetland restoration to um, building electric buses. So all of that work needs to be subsidized uh, with massive amounts of money from the federal government. And that's what they should be doing right now, right? Because we're actually in a situation where tens of millions of people have lost their jobs. They could be given federal jobs that actually, you know, began to shift over to a low carbon economy. And that could even happen, I think, you know, you could have a low carbon economy that was still a capitalist economy. I mean, I would eventually want to be fighting for full socialist equality. But since we need to save the planet first, I'm, I'm willing to, to have a little waste station on the way. Yeah. And what are some of your favorite socialist media publications? Oh, you know, there's a new, um, there's a new website out of Chicago called Rampant, R-A-M-P-A-N-T. And I've been really enjoying their work. It's really terrific stuff. They had, they had this one when the first protests started after the murder of George Floyd called the rebellion is the gateway to our future. And it's beautiful, really beautiful. Uh, I like a lot of the things that Jacobin has put out. I don't always agree with them. Sometimes they're a little bit uncritical of Bernie in ways that I wouldn't be. Um, there's a new magazine called Spectre. That's, uh, you know, it's sort of calling back to the Communist Manifesto, the opening lines of the Communist Manifesto, which is a specter is haunting Europe, a specter of communism. So um, those are three, rampant, specter, Jacobin. And our last question, how can the listener become an everyday activist for socialism? Well, you have to fight where you are, you know. Um, and then you have to sort of think about, I mean, to me, if you're, if you're a socialist, it means that you're thinking about short-term and long-term, right? So short-term, what's the best way for us to um, end police violence, defund the police, end qualified immunity? Long-term, what's the way best for us to achieve a society that's not divided by social class, so that we don't need the kind of police that we have now who are basically enforcing social class relations, you know, mostly policing 
you know, police don't go after insider traders. You know, they go after mostly poor people. So to me, that's what it means to be a socialist is you get involved in a local struggle and then you're also thinking about the long-term goal. Because it, the, the truth is like we have these, we have won these things, but if we don't get rid of capitalism, then we lose them again. Well, thank you so much for this interview. I have really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was very fun. Sabelle, I, I, I look forward to uh, listening to it. Thank you. That was Dr. Keith Danner, a composition lecturer at UC Irvine and the local president for the union UCAFT. I'm Sabelle Kaler, and thank you for listening to Office Hours on KUCI. To listen to past episodes or find out more, you can go to our website at bit.ly slash officehourskuci. I highly encourage you to get involved, and you can go to blacklivesmatter.carrd.co to see how you can donate and help. If you're listening to this, I hope you have an amazing day. Stay safe and be kind to each other out there.